You're right, I think. Is it on? Okay. You'll have to edit this part out. <laughs> All right, friends. Hate to cut short your fellowship time. Well, having completed our series in First Peter, I said last week we were just going to, you know, instead of thinking too deeply about what's next, let's just turn the page. Let's just go right on to Second Peter. And so we're going to be doing uh, our new series in Second Peter uh, beginning today, and this is going to be for the, next, um, for the next eight weeks. For the next eight weeks, we'll be in Second Peter. So let's take us about to the, to the middle of uh, our beginning, I should say the beginning of, of August. And um, let me just kind of give you an outline of the entire book to get us started. And so you kind of know where we're going. It's only three chapters in 2 Peter. And so we're going to be spending, so we're breaking, basically there's three parts to this, to this book. Um, and I've got an outline here for you that's kind of give you, uh, if you would like to, I think this is in the handout. If you want to see this in the handout, if you would like to, whenever we begin a new um, book series, I always encourage you to read through the whole thing. You could probably read through this in one sitting, less than a half an hour. You could read through the whole letter. And it might be good to get you familiarized with the, the whole of what Peter is, is attempting to communicate uh, to these people. But here are the three parts to the letter. If you were to break it into three parts, and it kind of follows roughly with each chapter. First is what I, what I refer to as the great things of God. Peter wants to begin where you should begin. Uh, we should begin with, with God, what he has accomplished for us in Christ. And I think Peter spends uh, the entire first chapter here driving home to his audience who God is, what he has done for them, and what they should, uh, they should do as a, as a result. So the great things of God, basically is chapter all of chapter 1. And in chapter 2, which is the second part of 2 Peter, he gives a warning against false teachers. A warning against false teachers. So we'll spend about three weeks looking at chapter 1. We'll spend two weeks looking at chapter 2 on what Peter has to say about false, pe uh, false teachers. Um, and uh, then thirdly, we will look... At the end of the letter, chapter 3, we'll look at the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. This is the topic that Peter addresses at the end of this, at this, at the end of this letter. This letter comes at the end of his life. And so as we get going in this, you'll see he, has, um, he knows that the end of his life is coming very soon. And he wants to really drive home as kind of a last will and testament to his churches that he's overseeing here. He really wants to drive home uh, some truths that they make he wants to make sure that they grasp before he departs. And so he's going to talk to about the dangers that they're going to experience uh, from false teachers in chapter 2 and then how to deal with the second coming of Christ as he's promised in, in chapter 3. Now, 2 Peter is a little bit different than 1 Peter. As we've just gone through 1 Peter, 1 Peter deals with 
uh, suffering from persecution from an unbelieving world that hates them, right? That was the recurring theme throughout the, the, the letter of 1 Peter. 2 Peter is dealing not so much from suffering persecution of outsiders who hate them. It's dealing with the threats that they will experience from inside, from people who would work their way into the church, false teachers who would work their way into the church and lead Christians away from the inside, usually attacking doctrines. And I think the presenting doctrine is on Christ's return, the end times, the last things, and we'll get to that uh, in due time. So 1 Peter, if you could kind of, what's the difference between 1 Peter and 2 Peter? 1 Peter is dealing with threats from outside of the church. 2 Peter is dealing with threats from the inside of the church. And so in a way, these two letters really complement uh, each other. And so today we're going to be looking at the great things of God, and we'll look at the first one today. And I could not get any farther than verse 4. And actually it was a stretch for me to get to verse 4. I almost couldn't get past verse 1. I told Janet, um, I was like, we may not get out of verse 1, um, but I want to follow a timetable. So we're, we're going to push through to verse 4, uh, verses 1 through 4 today. And this is just the introduction of a letter. And it is sometimes very unfortunate that when it comes to the introduction of the letter, we would just kind of gloss over it and read it like he's just kind of going through the, these preliminary little things and then moves on. Uh, I think that's very unfortunate because usually these introductions are packed full with teaching, packed full with truths, great truths about God and about Christ and about salvation and what God has done for them. And that this opening of this letter is all about this great gift of the gospel, this great gift of Christ, which is salvation. So here's the title for today's, The Great Gifts of Jesus the Messiah. And the first, uh, we'll, we'll kind of summarize it if you could give one letter to it, is, is salvation. And I see four gifts in these opening uh, verses. So let's read this passage and then we'll get through a couple of the preliminaries and then we'll get to the four main gifts, the great gifts of Jesus the Messiah for our salvation. So let's read verses one through four. Uh, you follow along together. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks, thanks be to God. And God, we do give you thanks that you speak to us through your word. And even now, having read it, to catch a glimpse of the depth of truths that are here, 
We pray that in these next few moments, you'll help us to really comprehend, to really understand them, and to take them to, to heart. And not just to agree to them, but to fully embrace them and to live accordingly. We ask that you would do, that you would do that work in us by your Holy Spirit. And so help us to understand these great gifts that you've provided for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's begin as we should begin with all letters. Let's look at the author, author and the audience. The author and the audience. The author gives two names and he gives two titles. His name's Simeon Peter. Now you might notice that that's a little bit different. You would expect that to say Simon, right? Uh, but in Acts chapter 15, you see that some of the other Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they refer to Peter by this name. This is a little bit more of a Hebraic spin on the name that we're most familiar with, which would be Simon and Simon Peter. Remember when Jesus calls his disciples, he's introduced to us the lead disciple as Simon. And that Jesus changes his name, he calls him Peter, which means rock. And so here, Peter actually gives both of his names. He gives kind of his Hebraic name and his Greek name, which is a very common uh, thing to, to happen in the ancient world. So he says, Simeon, Peter, those are his two names. And then here is his two titles. We've seen these titles before for a lot of the authors in the New Testament. A servant, or as you see, might see in the footnote, a slave. Uh, this is that Greek word doulos again. This means a bond servant or a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ and apostle of Jesus Christ. So here he's, he's describing kind of the full orb picture. He, of course, is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he has the authority of, that comes with being an apostle, being called by Jesus and appointed by Jesus along with the other 11 to be the authoritative voice to communicate the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. Remember the early church in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching has been passed down to us in what we have in the New Testament. Every New Testament letter uh, or a book in the New Testament has traces its origin to one of the apostles. Or it's through written by the co-worker of one of the apostles. But it's done under their auspices and under their authority. And so Peter is saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. But notice the, the humility too. He's like, but I'm just a servant. I'm just a slave. So that's the author. Who's the audience? Notice what he says here. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing as ours. Now, if you might remember from 1 Peter, um, he, he, 1 Peter, if you flip back to the beginning of 1 Peter, 1 Peter describes the churches, the Christians to whom he is writing, as to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. You might remember uh, these are actual geographical locations. There are churches in all of these locations, and he refers to them as the elect exiles. And so he's very specific in terms of location and, and, and who they are. Here it's very simpler. It's simple. He doesn't mention any of those, but if you look back to 2 Peter, notice what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. 
This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both I am writing, I am stirring, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he's saying this is the second letter that he's writing to them. So we know that this is the same group of people. It's the elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, but he doesn't call them that here. He calls them something else. And this is the part where it's very fascinating. And it gets to the truth, uh, our first great gift that we have through Christ. And that is the gift of faith. Look at verse 1. The second half of verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the great gift of faith. He says you have, uh, to them, he says you have obtained a faith. What's, what's very fascinating when I started to look into this is that he uses here, Peter uses a very rare word for obtained. It actually only occurs four times in all of the New Testament. And it's the word uh, for to have been chosen by lot. Okay, so you remember the biblical, they would, they needed to, the church needed to make a decision, or in ancient Israel, they needed to make a decision. They would cast lots, and the lots would fall to a certain person. Are you familiar uh, with that? This is the word for that. It, it's the term for the result of that. It's uh, to have fallen to a person by lot, or by extension, to have been assigned uh, to a person. So let me show you the other places where it's used in the New Testament to give us a little bit of understanding. Maybe we can kind of get a fuller picture of what he means here when he says that they have obtained a faith. It's the term used for, for Zechariah. You might remember back at Christmas we looked at Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He was uh, a part of the, the tribe of Levi and his group was assigned to service in the temple. And then in Luke chapter 1, it says, in that according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. So, you know, there's a large group, a tribe of people, and there's a lot of priests who had the qualifications to serve. And in this case, they would say, well, we're, there's only certain people that could go in and do this uh, burning of the incense and so we need to throw cast lots for who it is and it fell to Zechariah that's the term for it here the second place it's used is in John's gospel during Jesus's crucifixion while Jesus is hanging on the cross and they had stripped all of his clothes off and they had beaten him and nailed him to the cross the soldiers were there looking at the clothing and they were dividing up his material and then they came to his undergarment that was all woven of one piece you remember this passage and they didn't want to tear that because of the value of that piece and so it said let us not tear it but let's cast lots for it to see whose it will be and so this is uh, this is the same term that's used here of obtaining the one who one, the, the casting of the lots, the soldier there, he was the one who obtained this, this garment of Jesus. 
And lastly, in Acts chapter 1, and this is kind of the bigger picture of how this term is used, it's referred to Jesus as they're discussing the replacement, excuse me, refers to Judas as the early church is discussing who's going to replace Judas who had killed himself out of his ungodly grief and sorrow for having ratted on Jesus. They had spoke of uh, Judas as being numbered among us and allotted a share in this ministry, meaning he was chosen by Jesus to be a part of this. So if I could give a bigger picture of this term, obtaining a faith, that means you've attained this by divine will. You've obtained this by divine will. Peter is emphasizing that salvation is in no way by personal effort or skill or worthiness. He's really driving home the idea that the fact that we are saved by grace through faith really is a gift from God. In just this little uh, short verse here, Peter is basically pointing out the truth of the phrase that was coined during the Reformation era. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's all in, embedded in that when he describes them as to those who have obtained a faith, According to the divine will. I love it. So not only have they obtained this great gift of faith. Notice what it says here. They've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. The other ways that this is translated here is equal in value or equal in honor. Or it's the same kind of faith as ours. Or one translation says just as precious as ours. The NIV has as precious as ours. Notice what he's saying here is that the faith of the recipients of the letter is equated with the faith of the author and his colleagues. And I would say, and I would argue, and the apostles. It's a comparison here between the apostles of whom Peter was one and the readers who were not apostles. And he says, we have the same faith. The faith of later believers is not inferior to that of the apostles. Or to put it another way, because again, keep in mind here that uh, as we see later in this letter, Peter, he's talking about his departure. He's talking about leaving. And he wants to stir up by like last will and testament to them. I want to drive home the truths to you before I depart. And so he wants to drive home, even here in this introduction, as he's saying to them, second generation Christians uh, are, are on the same status with first generation Christians, those who walked with Jesus himself. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, equal value, equal honor, equal preciousness as ours. I love it. I think it drives home what, uh, what we've seen before in John's gospel when Thomas, who wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus himself with his, his hands, and then Thomas does see Jesus, and then he exclaims, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, 
Whoa, have you believed in me? Because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. It's amazing. Peter was there. Peter heard that. He understood. Second generation Christians have the same faith as first generation. Have the same faith as the apostles. So, they have obtained this faith by the divine will of God, and yet it's a faith that is equal to that of the apostles. And then he continues, he says, and this is all done by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I can't, boy, I don't have time to get into this, but notice that phrase right there, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the construction there. He's not talking about two different persons and of God and of the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've often heard people say the Bible nowhere says Jesus is God. Well, those three words, maybe not. But this is one of a handful of verses in the Bible that says Jesus is God. Well, I just read one of them that was that Thomas's when he looks and sees Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus God. Peter's doing the same thing here. Maybe, maybe I'll make a video and we can hash this out a little bit uh, more. But that's the first thing I want you to notice of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But all of this, this gift of faith, all comes by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, Peter's basically pointing out the truth of the Reformation, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that's what makes this so precious. Here's the second gift, the second great gift, and that is of grace and peace that we see in the greeting. Speaking of this sola gratia, grace alone, he says, now may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice grace and peace. This isn't just kind of a, a hello or like the Hawaiian aloha. Um, this greeting carries with it a great deal of meaning and weight. This is grace. The grace that we just spoke of here. The undeserved the undeserved, unmerited favor of God to save sinners. And consequently, drawing on the Hebrew side is this, the, the peace, or the Hebrew word for shalom, may blessing and well-being be upon you. But I think this is also connected with the peace that comes from being reconciled with God by grace. So loaded in meeting here. And this is, Another of the great gifts of Christ and his salvation, the gift of grace and peace, and that this all comes through the knowledge of God. Now, we're going to get into the knowledge here because you'll see that he uses this word a couple of times. He uses it again in verse three, and that this is all through the knowledge of God, which takes us to the third of the great gifts, and that is the great gift of life and godliness. The great gift of life and godliness. Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So here's the connection again. He's making this knowledge of Christ. It's knowledge of Christ in the greeting, grace and peace to you through the knowledge of Christ. And that through the knowledge of Christ to him who called us to glory, he wants to drive home this reminder of this great gift. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His, there's referring to Jesus Christ, his divine power has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. So here's something that's very important to understand about the Christian life. Christ doesn't just save you from your sins and your punishment and then leave you to walk the Christian life alone. He saves you from sin and punishment and provides you with all the power that you need to live the Christian life. This great gift of life and godliness. And that this comes through the knowledge of him who called you. Now this knowledge here, this isn't just intellectual. This isn't just recognition of, of facts. One of my professors explained uh, that that uh, through the church history, they, what is faith? What does it mean to fit, have faith and believe? And that the scholars all throughout history have kind of noticed three different aspects of faith, you know, saving faith. What does that mean? Like, well, I believe, I, I know things. What, what does faith mean? They've, they say there's, there's three parts here, and all three are necessary. And so I'm going to give you the Latin phrases here. One is noticia, or, you know, knowledge. Noticia means intellect. There's basic body of facts and information you have to have in order to have what is called faith. The second one is ascensus. And so if you could think of ascent. I agree to that. So you get this body of information and you think about this body of information and then you go, I agree. I agree. I believe that is true. Those are the first two parts of it. The last part is, uh, the Latin phrase is fiducia. So noticia, ascensus, fiducia. Fiducia is, now I'm going to rely on it. Now I'm going to, so I know I have some facts that this, this pulpit is here. Uh, and I have some belief that I think if I lean on it the right way, it won't tip over. Maybe this way. Okay, yeah. So I have some, some basic facts that this will not tip over. And I agree, yeah, if I leaned against it, then I would, um, that it would probably hold my weight. Okay? That's noticia. That's a census. Leaning on it, that's fiducia. You see how all three are necessary for saving faith. So whenever you hear knowledge in uh, Peter's letters, that's what he's talking about. The whole batch, all of it together. The knowledge of, of, of Christ. The knowledge of him who's called us into his glory. And so he says, now what you need to do is you need to lean on the fact that he has granted you the divine power for all that is necessary to live a godly life. Here's the main point of verse 3. 
His divine power has granted that all the things that are necessary to be obedient in following Christ, He's given us. If you are a genuine Christian, you can be sure that you can persevere in the Christian life, that you can grow, that everything that's necessary to do that is granted to you and has been given to you. This is very reminiscent to what Peter said at the beginning of his first letter. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, and verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Very similar. And this is where the call to take action is given. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then we, we trust in and rely on this truth and this fact that as Peter promises here, he's given us all things by his power. He's given us all things to be able to, to walk in it. Reminiscent to like what the Apostle Paul says in that great passage in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through grace. And this is not of yourselves. This is a gift of God. And then he says, and for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus that you may walk in them. Right? So what a wonderful gift of life and godliness. And to be specific, the power of has been granted to us for all things, for life and godliness. That's the third great gift, the great gift of faith, the great gift of grace and peace, the great gift of life and godliness, and lastly, the great gift of communion with God. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the great gift of communion with God, and that sounds, uh, maybe that sounds even a little too superficial. There's more depth here because I put uh, the great gift of communion with God, but look at the language that Peter uses here. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? It sounds kind of a little weird or maybe mystical on the first reading. Peter is actually borrowing an, an expression from pagan Greek religious thought. This partakers of the divine nature. But he's clearly putting a Christian, Christ-centered spin on this. He does not mean what's called um, apotheosis is the, the phrase, the, uh, man transitioning to God. He's not referring to that in the pagan sense, which is actually still prevalent today, uh, even in uh, certain religions in the world today, like Mormonism. Um, 
they do believe that you can't become God. So if you were to say that Jesus is the son of God, they would say, yes, I agree with that. And, and so are you. Like you can become, uh, you become gods. Or as we've talked about before in prosperity gospel, there's the little God theology that all of us are just little gods. We're offshoots of, of God in that sense. This is not what Peter's talking about. Rather, he's talking about real, organic communion with God. We've talked about the word koinonia before, fellowship. This is the related term, uh, koinonas. It, it means partnership, partnership with And because of this deep connection, and, and this isn't, I don't believe this is in my notes here, but I think back to when we talked about the Lord's Supper, maybe about a year ago, we talked about the Lord's Supper, and we talked about that this isn't just a memorial, we're not just taking this meal, that something is really happening, we're, part, we're partaking with God, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is why he says, I don't want you to go to the temples and engage in the feasts and stuff there, because when you do, remember what he said, he goes, you are, he's using this word, you are partaking of the nature of the demons. He goes, that's why I don't want you to go eat in those things. And yet, he goes, but remember, like when Israel, back in the sacrificial system, when they would offer the sacrifice and then we're given the meat to eat in fellowship together. He goes, you're partaking in a communion with God in that. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 and 11. It's in there. It's this term. Don't, don't eat in the temples because when you do, you're, you're doing this partaking of the nature of demons. And it's just like it was in the old days when the people would have this meal. They're partaking in the nature of Yahweh. Okay, so this is what I mean. This communion sounds a little too weak for what Peter's talking about here. But, he's, but Peter's not talking about the pagan sense. This is very similar to the Paul's meaning when Paul speaks of being in Christ or in him. So Peter's statement is very uh, startling at first, but it's hardly different than something that Paul would say when, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, that we may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Whoa. Whoa. That truly being a Christian, there's, there's some real depth of communion that happens with God. Real interaction with God that happens. I would say it's no different than the concept of what John, John's gospel says about being born again. You have been born from above. Like John says, opens his gospel, but to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. It's not different in the concept of what I said earlier about being in Christ. Romans 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Later in that chapter, he says, Nor nothing, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is no different than the concept of the new creation that we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And you're not just version 2.0. You're in, you're a new creation in, in God and God in you. So really, this is a really amazing passage. The very precious promises of salvation um, result in being God's children and sharing in God's nature. It's like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Like, he's, it's still Paul. Paul it's the same, you know, Saul, Paul. He goes, but in a sense, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or as he wrote to the church at Corinth, or excuse me, Colossae, in Colossians 1. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory this is amazing you see this everywhere this this beautiful picture that um, we don't become little gods but we really are a new creation we really are his children we really are his offspring we have the fullness of God in us the fullness of Christ in us and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and so we in that we partake of that divine divine nature it's a beautiful passage. And so this is the epitome of eternal life and the antithesis of the curse of sin, which is how he ends, verse 4, right? You, you become partakers of the, the, the divine nature, but in order to do that, you have to have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is what God does. He takes sinful creatures who have no desire to pursue after him. And he comes and he rescues them from their corruption, from sin, from the world, from their own bondage. And he rescues them, enables them to believe in him. Not just, a, not just noticia, not just assent, but fiducia to trust in him. And then gives these great gifts, faith, grace, peace, all things that enable us to live in life and godliness and to be partakers of his nature. This is just Peter's piling on. And this is why he calls these such great, precious and very great promises. Very great promises indeed. Peter begins chapter 1 with the great things of God. We've only looked at the first four in the first four verses. The great gifts of salvation that come with salvation. Faith, grace, 
peace, life, godliness, and communion with God. What a wonderful way to begin a letter, right? If you're going to talk about the warning of false teachers, if you're going to talk about doctrines like Christ's return in the end times, you don't just jump right to those issues. You go, let me remind you of some things first. Let me remind you about the great gift of salvation in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this, this amazing passage. And we thank you that the groundwork that, that Peter lays here, he's so urgent to share with this, uh, these communities of, of Christians knowing that his departure was imminent. And yet he takes this time to spell out all of these wonderful truths in this opening greeting. We thank you, God, that we can come to your word and that we believe that, um, that all of this scripture is breathed out by you and that you've put all of this here. It's not just preliminary and information to move on to other things, but that you've put all of this here for us and for our benefit, to the nourishment of our souls. And so, God, we pray that this week we will remember, all of us, the great gift of salvation and all of these gifts of faith, grace and peace, life, godliness, and that we partake, we partake in your nature. Help us to remember that and to live accordingly to your glory. And it is in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Friends, let's stand for our uh, closing benediction. A reminder, the offering box is over at the table. If you, if you have any questions about this or any prayer concerns, love to talk with you. So hang around uh, afterward and, uh, and come and see me. I would love to do that. Um, so now, brothers and sisters, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.